All right, so I have some good news this morning and some bad news. All right, so which one do you want to hear first? I'm giving you the good news first, all right? The good news, why do I even ask, right? The good news is that it's possible that for some of you, the bad news won't turn out so bad. All right, so that's the good news, all right? It won't turn out so bad. You'll hear more in the sermon, more of the bulk of the sermon this morning. Bad news is there's a good chance that you won't apply this morning's sermon to your life. From a human perspective, of, of all the messages on prayer, for all the messages we do on this new series, Pray Like There's a God, this one message, this one about King Josiah, is the least likely to leave this building with legs. From a human perspective. Because it will take work, but more importantly and more than that, because it's not new. I mean, really, the, the concept I'm going to sort of present this morning from God's Word is really nothing new. And frankly, we like new, don't we? Something fresh. In fact, let's just clear the air and admit it. Uh, some, even now, you're thinking about, you're coveting the new shiny toy. We even view the newer, the shinier version of things as superior, uh, what C.S. Lewis often called chronological snobbery. Right? Because it's new, it's better. I'll give you some examples. First, from the world of fashion. If your wardrobe consists of these, right, uh, mom jeans, you know the mom jeans, right? You know? Or, uh, or these, remember the scrunchies, right? You are looking most likely for a, a quick upgrade because you feel you know what you're wearing now is a crime against humanity, right? If you're a relational person, nothing excites you more than a new relationship, right? New conversations, new activities, of course, new potential. New relationships kind of have that uh, like that new car smell. Yes, I can see my future in this. Nowhere, though, is the obsession with the new more prevalent than with technology. And all things I, right? Companies prey on our lust for the new. We will go after it even if there's the slightest perception, even if, like, you know, even if they just changed the face of it and added like a half a megapixel to the camera. Bam! We want that. And uh, of course, I can present to you the iPhone 4. Alright, now, uh, when I was back in the city, first of all, let me say this, where you're like, why does he have, he's a pastor, he should have like a, he should have like an old phone that's like three pounds and you can't fit in his pocket. First of all, I just got the iPhone 4, like, because I'm a pastor, like, I was living up the iPhone 3 until, like, very recently. And even that, it wasn't the one with video, so. You can feel bad for me, all right? But look, when I got back to the States, I got in a conversation with a tech guy there who told me something I found interesting. He said that uh, everything required for the iPhone 5, the next iPhone, all the hardware, all the specifications 
are actually already in the iPhone 4. They just need to be activated. But of course, you know, because Apple is not going to take your current phone and just zip, activate it for you. They will give you a phone with a new shell. And push a button and it's all good, right? And that's the most sinister part is that they know we'll buy it. This lust for the new is actually nothing new. Not really that novel. Uh, we see it actually in biblical times. For example, the Apostle Paul is going to Athens one day to speak, going to the big city. He was going to reason with others about the good news of Jesus, this new gospel. And he did so, and where else? The marketplace. Right? Our version of the mall. Luke, who authored the book of Acts, provides this fascinating detail. This is Acts 17.21. Just listen to this. All the Athenians, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in the marketplace in nothing except telling and hearing something new. They just loved it. Ah, oh, fresh, shiny. And I think this desire for something fresh and new isn't evil or wrong. It's just that we look for it in the wrong places. We look for it, frankly, in the easy and convenient place. We look for it externally when God means to forge it internally. Usually. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't do new things, but typically what God does is old things and just does them again. Specifically, He wants to do newness internally in us. So, for example, in the New Testament, you have this constant talk about God renewing the inner man. The inner man. Or the inner woman. Best example, though, probably comes from a verse we considered last week. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 says this. Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Everything around us is going to waste away. God is interested in doing something new within us, not around us. Now, you're wondering, okay, we haven't even gotten into the passage this morning. You're like, okay, I thought this was about King Josiah. Well, the reason I'm spending all this time on this is because I think it's especially important also for a church like us. Over our brief history, the church has been subject to a lot of change. Uh, we've had almost always had something new in the church. And because, though, we've had a lot of new things, and I remember arriving, people saying things like, oh, I'm glad we'll have some stability. And we say those things, or, or for example, I remember going on my first vacation, and people came up to me like, you're coming back, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Why, why are you saying that? Because we've had a lot of newness in our church's history. So I think, you know, for that reason, when you combine our history with the already societal tendency preferring the new, we may say we want stability. But in reality, there's potential trouble when God calls us to being faithful to old things. So, my preaching, uh, community groups, this outreach to Georgetown Primary, worship, will appear old at some point. Like, in your mind, you'll be like, it's getting old. That will happen. By the way, that's a great uh, promo, right, for newcomers this morning, if you're new with us. Right, uh, Sunrise Community Church, eventually, it's going to get old. 
Yes. Be part of that. Let's do it. So this year, this year we are still pushing community through community groups. All right, now we didn't have flashy a flashy promo campaign like we did last year. We didn't have a video. We didn't do like two messages, sermon messages on community groups. We didn't do like uh, testimonials about community. So it's tempting to not get involved. I'm not pushing it. That's kind of a, that was last year. The appeal factor is not as strong. So it's even harder not just to get involved, but even stay involved. But what God means to do is to plant in us a new attitude in our hearts and our minds towards community. New attitude within us. For instance, by faith, maybe maybe if you're a community group, you're speaking up more. Maybe it's uh, loving someone you haven't really been able to love very well in your community group. Maybe it's inviting the gals over for dinner from community group this year and being more hospitable. I don't know what that looks like for you. God wants us always to have new, renewed perspectives towards old things. He wants to do that in us. By the way, that's true of the Bible also. That's kind of where we're going this morning because I'm going to push something old this morning. Something you've likely heard before, and that's basically daily reading the Bible, then praying. Alright, that's not revolutionary. It's an old thing, but I think we need a renewed perspective. Think about the Bible. Which excites you more? God's Word or a new book, teaching, that gives us a fresh look at how to live biblically? It's true also when it comes to reading the Bible. That we often love to hear new concepts. We often like to hear uh, even pastor types preach new concepts that are often kind of out there, to be honest. Like, they're taking something old and preaching on something new. I went over to dinner at someone's house recently, and they were asking me, what's the Jezebel spirit? Like, what is that? Like someone said, what someone told us there's something in the Bible called the Jezebel spirit. I was like, no, there's not. Like there's a person called Jezebel, who was this, was this wicked queen who like, tried to kill Elijah. And so out of that, what happened? Teachers made something up. Well, there's a type of spirit called the Jezebel spirit. It's really angry and it's animosity. No, that's just something people made up because they want something new. We, we like to hear newness. See what I'm saying? The God of the universe has initiated a conversation with us. He has spoken, and, and, and here it is. In speaking to us this love letter, he has set an agenda for our conversation, for prayer. It may seem old, and not if our attitudes are new. So this morning specifically, if you could just strap on your sanctified imaginations and Right? Get those on, and we can re-enter an experience of what it would be like to read this again for the first time. And in doing so, we can observe what the Bible can do in setting the agenda of relating with the divine. Alright, so strap on your imaginations. We're going to read the Bible as if it was the first time. Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22, that's on page 283, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided in these chair pockets, these black chair pockets. Read with me, starting in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, 
Jedidiah, uh, the daughter of Adiah of Boscoth. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, the temple, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought in the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. Let it be given into the hand of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who were at the house of the Lord to repair the house, that is, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house, to repair the temple. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered in their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shephan, the secretary, I have found, so they go, they go to the temple, they do this. The builders find something. I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. This is great. So it's been so long that they unearthed this book of the law, most likely Deuteronomy. If it was the whole book of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy would have been like, it would have been like four people would have to carry it. So basically that's how heavy it would have been. So Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and delivered in the hand of the workmen who gave oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So here we can, if we're willing, renew two attitudes towards God's word. First of all, let's consider the context. Uh, Josiah's granddaddy was one of the most wicked kings in, in Israelite and in, in Judah, Judah's history. All right? I mean, his name was Manasseh. He went out of his way to promote idolatry, to shed innocent blood, even sacrificed to a false god. And, excuse me, not just sacrificed to a false god. I should be more clear. He sacrificed his son to a false god. Cruel, a wicked man, whole chapters dedicated to him. If you're in the book of Kings, you don't want two things to happen. A long chapter of nice things written about you, or like a really short chapter. He's pretty good, let's move on. You don't want a long chapter and wickedness. Things in poorly for you. Alright, so, but this was the case for Manasseh, Josiah's granddaddy. And then Josiah's dad followed in his dad's footsteps. Alright, so Manasseh had a child. A son, that son, followed his dad's footsteps. So we're talking 57 years of apostate living. All right, the word was completely absent in popular culture. All right, in regular society, the word was just not there. 57 years. That's an entire lifetime. Folks, before this, for back in the ancient Near Eastern times, this time period, an entire lifetime, three generations had really passed since God's word was at all part of normal society. Absent for all practical purposes. Now think about that for a moment. There's no counsel on how to read the Bible. No leaders, laws that are informed by it. No people who are actually transformed through it. You might say, well, that's not a big deal. 
You still know God, right? I, I'm not much of a Bible person. I'm more of a I'm more of a prayer person. I'm more of a I'm more of an action person in my life. I don't think you really mean it. At least I hope you do, right? Because people are prayer people. I know I know God wants to hear from us. He wants to hear from His children. How do you know that? How do you know that? Or you say, well, you know, uh, I believe God cares as much about what we, what we say and what we hear. But even more so, he cares about what we do. Or at least as much he cares about what we do. Where do you learn that? Most likely you learn that from the book of James, chapter 2. Showing your faith by what you do, through your actions. Right? Through God's word. Hopefully reading this. And considering the context all over the world like this, where God's word is just absent, we develop a new attitude. Right? Dare I say it, the attitude of gratitude. Right? Not only do we have a Bible, but people, we have people who can provide evidence that this book is reliable. We have people who, we know how it was both supernaturally but also responsibly put together. We know how to understand it and apply it to life because it's been around for generations and generations. We have that blessing in our lives. Man, do you imagine? 60 years, almost, no Bible. No hearing from God. But there's a second attitude that's potentially present if we see it here, and that's this. The attitude of when we approach the Bible, reading and responding to God's word as for the first time. Like it's the first time. Like it was for Josiah. Listening as if God is speaking and we just simply respond. Seeing it as if it's new to us again. Because friends, Josiah didn't know any better. You know what I mean? He... His instinctive response was to read and then go to God. So he reads and weeps for forgiveness. He reads and then asks for direction. He reads and commits to obey. He reads and destroys idols. He didn't know any better. So pray with me. We get to the sermon more. Father, help us read your word again like it's the first time this morning. Help us, really in a sense, like Josiah, not know any better than to listen to you speak and just respond. As in any relationship. Respond. Give us this new attitude, this renewed mind to, to listen. And give us a renewed heart to receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's keep reading. Verse, I'm, I'm praying a lot more during sermons now. Have you noticed that? It's crazy. All right. Verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law. So he hears it. He tore his clothes. We're going to stop here. Read. The king reads and he weeps for forgiveness. This was no cathartic daily cry. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie broadcast news with Holly Hunter. She had this like, daily cry idea where like, I'm just going to cry once a day. Okay, but... This is a grief that goes beyond regret. This action in the Old Testament is meant to connect the emotional and the physical. Tearing your clothes 
was meant to connect what was going on internally with the physical, externally. And while only part of the garment was torn, in terror, lest you get a bad image here, it wasn't like, you know, like a, you know, like one of those tuxedo suits and just went, you know, fell off the floor. He, he tore part of his garment, but it was irrevocably torn. Not to be re-sown, there was long-lasting damage, which was meant to reflect his emotional state. The best modern analogy I could think of, um, not with grief, but with another emotion, is anger. All right, has anyone here ever decided during a fit of anger to uh, hit a wall? You don't have to raise your hand. But I know some of you in here, some of you can do that better than others, by the way. I'm looking at some of you out there. Some of you are like, yeah, it was, it was nothing. Like, I was fine for me. Like, there's others like me who would be like, ah. Right? But typically, <laughs> there's long-lasting physical damage to mirror the emotional damage, right? You're so angry about something that this is your outlet. Well, this was the case in the Old Testament. You ripped your clothing to mirror the long-lasting emotional damage. Grief. Specifically grief over one's own wrongdoing. God's word will lead you to respond to God with with weeping. Well, if you read God's word long enough, you're going to have, it's going to confront you and you're going to, it's going to pierce your heart. You're going to weep over sin specifically. Martin Luther used to use, for instance, the Ten Commandments to soften his heart and confess sin. You have places like Psalm 51 where David realizes the depth of this rebellion and it's weeping and it's caused me to weep before. Or what about Isaiah or Peter's encounter with God's holy presence? And we consider our dirtiness before God. Make you weep. Or what about the book of Hosea where where God sends this real life analogy where he asks a guy to marry a woman he knows is going to prostitute herself ahead of time as an analogy to what Israel does to him, which is prostitute herself. God's people prostitute themselves against God. That can make you weep. It has made me weep before. Is that what I do to you, Lord? All this makes sense because Jesus told us when he departed, for those of us who believe, that he would get something awesome, this great gift, God, the Holy Spirit, you trust in Christ, you have God living inside you. He's called the Holy Spirit. And he said two concrete things about the role of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. In his last little speech before, to the disciples before he dies and is raised again. He says this, that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of guilt and that he will guide people into all truth. Alright? It's not a coincidence we see those two things together. He guides us in the truth and he convicts. They go together. Reading God's word, we do for sin. It's not the most fun thing to talk about, but it will happen. But it gets better. Because God's word always, always, always will guide you into hope. Where there is weeping, there's always hope. As bad as things are for Josiah, for his people, and he's about to hear some more bad stuff in a moment. You're going to read it with me. You'll hear in about seven verses that he doesn't weep without receiving from God a personal hope, a promise of hope for himself. And we see this everywhere in the Bible. Wherever there's weeping, wherever there's sadness, even in the beginning and the first moment of history, we see hope along with it. Think about the first moment of history, the worst part of history, 
Arguably, when man first sins against God, God kicks him out of everlasting life. This is a sad moment. Kicks him out of the Garden of Eden. And then, he, and then it gets worse. He's cursing everyone. God's cursing everyone. He gives a curse to all of mankind, all of womankind, and then to the serpent. But even in these moments, God drops this little nugget. Genesis 3.15 he says this. He says this to the serpent, basically Satan. He says, I will put enmity, in other words, hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. That he shall bruise your head is a reference to Christ through the cross conquering Satan. Conquering the powers and principalities of this world, even though the serpent, Satan, will strike his heel, right? Because he will die. He will be punished for sin. So even in the worst moment of history, God enters hope. He inserts hope. Theologians call this the Proto-Evangelion. It's like the first gospel. All the way back to Genesis 3. So when you read God's word, it makes you weep. Actually leads to hope. It's an old Puritan good dude named Thomas Watson once said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That's true, right? If you've ever experienced real depth of sweetness with Christ, sin has also been bitter to you. We have the hope of Christ through trusting in Him, this forever forgiveness or sin or rebellion. But the glorious paradox is that. He becomes sweeter the more bitterly we digest sin. Right? The more it's bitter to digest, Christ becomes sweeter. So Josiah reads and weeps for forgiveness. But read with me, you know, verse 12 through 20. Alright? And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me. And for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that's kindled against us because our fathers haven't obeyed all the words in this book to do all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Parhas, Keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. I think that's inserted because that's how far away it was far off to find someone who actually knew anything about God's word. And he talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place, upon its inhabitants, all the words of this book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me. And they made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, there comes the hope. Right? Here's the hope. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, because you changed, and you humbled yourself before the Lord. When you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, they should become a desolation of the curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I have heard you, there's a word. I have heard you. 
Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this people. And they brought that word to the king. So, what did Josiah do here? Very simply, first time reading the word, he reads it, and he asks for direction. Reads and asks for direction. And what exactly? For what exactly is he asking direction? To understand God's word and how to apply it to his life and the life of his people. Right? That's really all he's doing. How, how do I get this and how does it apply to me and my people? That's what he's asking about. Very simply. Hold up this prophet, prophetess. She knows God's word. She knows the conditions of the covenant set forth in Deuteronomy. There's this long series of both blessings and curses in Deuteronomy that if, if God's people agree to enter into this covenant of love with God, if they persistently fail to obey, they're going to experience these curses. She knows this. She knows God's word. And so she says, here's how it applies to you and your situation. If you are looking for direction, not just now, but throughout your life, friend, Seeking direction about how to interpret and apply God's word is the best place to start. The best place. Because God's sure, definite voice is here to speak to you. The Scottish preacher Alex White once said, the Bible is all autobiographic of you. That there's every kind of situation and struggle, but also promise, conviction of sin, but also hope in here. So I want to encourage you, yes, pray, ask the Holy Spirit to show you how to interpret and apply it. But also, yes, seek wisdom for interpretation, for application of God's word elsewhere. From God's people, from his church. And this leads to me to my second pitch in the last month for taking notes. Not just in church, anytime God's word is open. Why not have a piece of uh, paper and pencil for you? This is God's word. Now, I'm not saying this so much for, for you know, this a particular sermon on a particular morning, but to look back and to start noticing a pattern of how someone interprets the Bible and applies it to their life. It's incredibly instructive. That's basically what Josiah does here. I don't know how to do this. Would show someone show me? And I'm not saying I'm the best at this. Certainly not. Nor am I always right. Certainly not. But I take very seriously, really gravely. The responsibility of being an example of interpreting God's word responsibly and then applying it to life. So I'd be thrilled. I say this in all sincerity. I'd be thrilled to sit down with you and share more of how you might read God's word and apply it as a guide to prayer, as a guide to speaking and relating with God. I'm serious about this. Email me. Call me. I, I really serious about this offer. That's something that interests I want to give you one tidbit now. I can't give you everything this morning. But I can see how grateful I am when someone shared with me some of how to do this. They shared with me some practical questions for interpreting and applying God's word. So I want to share this with you. I've added to it a little over the years. But notice how it's a great guide specifically for prayer. Just when you come to a passage of scripture or a verse of scripture, ask some of these questions. Is, in this is there in this passage a command to be obeyed? 
We need to pray for strength to follow through with that. Alright? Is there a promise to be believed? Is there a truth about God to be trusted? These are practical questions to ask in God's Word. Is there a character trait of God to be praised? Is there a prayer to be prayed? Is there a conviction of sin to be confessed? Is there an example of sin or temptation to avoid? Right? Is there an idol to be removed, to be killed? Is, and what I'm reading this morning or this evening, is there a need that can only be met in Christ? These are some questions we can ask that can help us. You know, how should I communicate with God about this? How should I pray? How should I seek Him? How should I respond to His word? Josiah keeps going. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar, and he made a covenant before the Lord. To walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of the, this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. They joined and heard him and they joined in with him. So, very simply, Josiah also reads and he commits to obey. He just reads God's word and he says, okay, well, it says to do this. Let's commit together to do this. Let's do this together. Let's commit before the Lord. Let's speak to him and speak this commitment to him. And he does two things in his prayer and his commitment to the Lord to, to further cement that commitment to obedience. First thing he does, he speaks it. Well, he speaks it and he makes it public. First of all, he speaks it. There's something about praying out loud that moves prayer from the uncertainty of the mind. You know what I mean? To the reality of life. I don't know if you know this, but just speaking it does this. It becomes very concrete. I think that's why God commands his people to testify publicly. He tells them to make these covenants with him. Or or to erect these uh, altars or, or these spiritual stones as a visible sort of speaking out loud way of praying, committing to obedience. The other night I was watching our boys. I was doing what any you know, sporting father tries to do when he's flying solo. Uh, Katie was at a parent night at Hope Academy, our religious education teacher. And so I was trying to kill two birds with one stone. Like any sporting dad tries to do, you know. You know, you know these situations, right, Dad? You uh, feed your baby her mush while uh, trying to finalize a business transaction. It's fair game, right? It's just, why not? You know, I got time, I got a phone, I got two hands, make it happen. Or uh, giving a child a bath is the perfect time to figure out how to do iTunes. Yeah, do this at the same time. I'll put my computer right in front of the bath one. You know, we try to do these things often in tragedy. So for me, this night, it was playing with our children and getting some intense cardiovascular exercise. All right, now, we, yeah, you say, well, kids get you in shape. 
high gun. You can't go like on, you know, three three kilometer runs generally. But this is what I was trying to do. All right. So uh, our version of this was I put them in a jogging stroller. We uh, we run to Dark Park, just kind of near our house, and we we play this game called Zoo Safari, which essentially they're animals, and I try to hit them with a Nerf football. All right. That's that's what the game is. They love it. They love this game. They'd be like, damn, let's play this play again. There's seven and four. Eventually, my seven year old will realize, you know, this. But uh, that's okay. Okay, for now. We pray for our children, but the scarring will heal. So, but as I was jogging over, and Katie was at this event, all right, and, and I just sort of mumbled a general blessing on Katie. You know what I mean? Like, you're just sort of like, yeah, help me. I just sort of like thought it. But not really made it. They didn't make it into a prayer. And, you know, the Holy Spirit urged, urged me at this point. He said, no, you always do this. You always do this. Sort of like this vague, not even prayer. It's like a blah. Blah. So, out loud, while our children were fighting over a make-believe steering wheel in the cart, I prayed out loud, Father, please give Katie two specific encouragements from parents and ideas. Help her get encouraged by two parents specifically. And then I pray, and help me remember to ask her about it. Right? I prayed this out loud. I'm telling you, it helps. We didn't talk until a bit later. But I remembered to ask, hey, did you receive any specific encouragements tonight? So in turn, I both hear and answer the prayer, and I ask my wife a thoughtful question. Which, as you men know, that's two birds with one stone right there. Right? <laughs> But it cements it. Praying out loud, but also making it public. Also cements it further. That's what Josiah does here. He does it publicly before others. And they join in. Cements it further. I want to read to you an excerpt of an email I received this week from a woman in our church who loves this island, wants to remain on it, but has been praying for a job to stay on it. And she gave me permission to share this. So she said this in the email Brian, you know how I've asked for prayer to get me a job? Well, I didn't just ask you, I asked everyone I knew that I thought might even remotely be praying for me, a praying person. Even people who I know had no interest in ever going to church. When I did ask them, I'm pretty sure I mentioned to most of them, if not all, do you pray to God? Please make sure you pray like there is a God. Keep in mind, these were people I knew, not strangers, just taking baby steps. LOL. Lol. I got a job offer for the job I really wanted. I haven't signed the contract yet. That will happen at the end of the week. My very first thought was, praise God. And about two seconds later, it was, oh my gosh, now I need to pray for help for doing this job. What are my sales targets going to look like? And blah, 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 blah. She said that. I had to stop in my tracks and think about what you said about us taking the time to really give God thanks and praise instead of just moving on to the next step. I've been praying about this for a month. The least I can do is take time to give them thanks and praise. Now listen to what she does. I've called most of the people who I know who are praying for me to thank them for their prayers and praise God with them on the phone, on Skype, on email. So now I'm telling you, praise Jesus. That was in caps. I got the job I've been asking for. Praise Jesus. I can now be a proper member of the greeting team at the church I now attend and love at Sunrise. And that's as exciting as a job for me, really. Cool as that. I mean, it's just so cool to hear in general. I mean, uh, to be part of the greeting team. 
I mean, not many people get that that much praise for being part of the greeting team. It's a great team. It's awesome. But she took a private conversation into the public sphere. Not only will others see evidence of God's hand, but she will never forget. Right? So for Josiah, there are only two chapters spilled on him. But this one moment, committing to obedience, is never forgotten. Because it's public. Because he spoke it. Watch and heard. Just as for the woman who sent me this email, speaking and going public, you think that's going to help her? Follow through and praying for this job? Help for this job becomes a reality? You think that's going to help her actually follow through to ask God for help? As she said she would to her friends and others, you better believe it. It's going to cement it for her. She's far more likely to follow through. So including this morning, when praying, very simply, remember nothing else about the sermon, remember this, in a nutshell, when praying, let God have the first word. Let God have the first word. If you want to go deeper on this, if you want to read more about this, on the book table in the back, there are 10 or so copies of a book chapter from Eugene Peterson. You may know him. He uh, wrote the Bible paraphrase, the message. He has this wonderfully rich description on why letting God's word be primary and first in our prayers is so vital for the long-term effectiveness and depth of our prayer. So feel free. For free, it's on the book table if you want to read further on this. But if you're wondering when you might do this, when you might make God's word your guide in prayer, friends, I have good news this morning. You've been doing it. You've been doing it. This is God's word to you. He started the conversation. Today, he picked that conversation up in 2 Kings 22 and 23. And we asked, how can we similarly be led by God's word? We used our imaginations to send it to the story. And in doing so, we had an attitude change. What would it be like to read God's word again as if for the first time? We would simply read and weep for forgiveness. We would simply read and ask for guidance. We would simply read and commit to obedience. Look how Josiah's life was characterized. Down in chapter 23, verse 25. This is the summary of his life. Before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Because he turned to God with all of himself, not blindly, not with, oh, man, not with his heart or his gut feeling, but according to his word, according to the law. May the same be true of us. Let's pray. Father, as we want to go deeper, knowing you, have a relationship with you, Give us the courage, the discipline, Lord, the strength to follow through in making your word the first word of our conversation. Just as your word was the first of Genesis, just as when we're children, we don't learn words until we've heard thousands of them. But Father, we often want to speak and you know, get it out there. And your word is meant to guide us. In May this sermon walk out with legs today. May we apply it to our lives. Jesus.